I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by best-selling author and New York Times food reporter, Priya Krishna. Stay tuned. So Happy New Year, everyone, and I hope this finds you staying healthy and positive. Thanks for listening to the show, sharing it with your friends, subscribing to the podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcast, and following on social media at Dr. Abhay Dandekar. Now, last year, I started to really enjoy cooking in the kitchen and became more curious about not just the outcome, but also the process and the stories behind food. In truth, there's definitely a degree of confidence that's involved. Just feeling somewhat capable and competent to make something, possibly at first not as tasty as you imagine, but then try again and aim more towards perfection. My kids, my wife, my mom, my mother-in-law, they all seem to be able to merely stroll into the kitchen and create something magical. And man, I would love to have that command and nimbleness, especially for Indian food, which I truly love, but seems like the daunting black hole and abyss of my dive into cooking, or any other food style or preference for that matter. It helps to have some guidance to proceed, learn, and just feel comfortable. And that's exactly why I was thrilled to share a conversation with the simply terrific Priya Krishna. Priya is a food reporter for the New York Times and a New York Times bestselling author of multiple cookbooks, including Dining Hall Hacks and Indianish. She grew up in Texas and her experiences with food through the lens of being in an Indian American family, learning about food through her parents and culture, surviving the dining halls of college, and deeply exploring food as a journalist have produced writing and media that's just authentic, expressive, filled with empowerment, and resonant for so many. Priya is passionate about being a food journalist of color and what this represents in a contemporary world. And so her latest cooking book, co-authored with David Chang, titled Cooking at Home, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About Recipes and Love My Microwave, pretty much encapsulates the essence of my own personal food mission. We caught up to chat and started at the root of it all family stainless steel cups and containers. I can't have enough stainless steel dabe and vakya. You know, <laughs> it's just a, it's just a part of, of the fabric of things. And does it hit you a certain way? I mean, for me, it certainly hits me differently if I was using a mug or a bowl or something, as opposed to one of these things. How much does nostalgia kind of inform what you do? Oh, I mean, so much. My cookbook, Indianish, is sort of steeped in that nostalgia. You know, when I was sitting down to write the recipe list, I was just running through my mind, like, what are the memories from my childhood? What are the things that, you know, I crave when I'm away from home? And, you know, things like stainless steel and, you know, certain containers really figured into that. And if you look closely at the photographs from my cookbook, all of that figures into the cookbooks because, you know, those, those vehicles for nostalgia are just as important as the food itself. Yeah. At, you know, beyond that journey, do you find that there's a, a new nostalgia that you make even aside from the cookware or the, you know, empty sour cream boxes and, and that sort of thing when, you know, you're now going through your 
your early adulthood, are there new nostalgia or new memories that you make that don't necessarily have to do so much with the Indian experience, but more with the Indian American experience? You know, I grew up in such a, it's such an Indian American household. So I feel like that is the nostalgia that still takes hold. I imagine that when I have children, maybe um, I will feel nostalgic for things in my Brooklyn apartment, but I think I'm too close to it to feel nostalgic for, for stuff beyond my childhood. Well, and, and how about, you know, for, for you, does the, does the language of what's going on in the kitchen also make a difference? So, you know, a lot of times when I see items like this, you know, in, in my house, I think of like my grandmother actually cooking in, in our Marathi language at home. And, you know, does, is there, are there some parts of that nostalgia that you just can't recapture? Yeah. I mean, you know, just being in my mom's kitchen is such a different experience. You know, you open, I know that right to the stove, you open the cabinet, there's going to be the lazy Susan of spices with her little plastic disposable spoon that she's been using for years to, put the spices down. I mean, my, my partner who's not Indian knows so many, uh, kitchen words in Hindi because I'm just, we're so used to switching between Hindi and English in the kitchen, especially. So saying, you know, pass the healthy, can you, you know, grind the jira, things like that. And so, yeah, totally. We have our own, our own kitchen language and it's sort of this Hindi English, but also like tacit understanding that, you know, you need this without even having to say it. Right. You know, as these sort of families and, and experiences merge together, do you find that there's a lot more licensure for that blend to happen and therefore make sort of a new experience that is, you know, something that's actually not quite uh, completely Indian and not quite completely American? As in the new book, you're becoming more facile with the stuff that you have in your kitchen, whether that be completely Indian or completely American or a complete different version of that. How do you reflect on some of that? Yeah. I mean, like my upbringing was so Indian American. So I've never felt like, oh, I'm taking my mom's food and like bringing it into the American sphere. There hasn't really been that adaptation. Probably what has happened is that I've just learned so much since I joined the food industry about different foods, different dishes, different cultures. And I think what is really fun is then when I call my mom and we can chat about sort of these new dishes that I've found or this new way of making hummus that makes it sort of extra silky. And I think that sort of exchange has been really exciting where it's not just her teaching me, but it's us sort of just chatting and sort of maintaining this ongoing conversation about food. I've heard people, including my mom, and I've heard you even talk about this, at least in Marathi, what's called swaipakata hat, or like this cooking hand, where there's just this intangible feel to, to mm-hmm. developing good food and good doll and just, just things being really tasty. In this latest book, when you're crafting sort of cooking at home and thinking about it, did that at all translate to simply being comfortable and, and facile um, with what was available and improvising with what you have? whether it's using a microwave or, or just sort of the, the items that you have in front of you? You know, I think some people are born with that intuition, my mom being one of them. But I think most people have to really develop and hone that intuition over time. And once you have that intuition, you can really make anything with what's available to you. So the challenge of that book was really, how do we teach people that intuition, you know, that to know that, you know, I've got 
these six ingredients and these, I can combine these two with green beans and saute them and it'll taste delicious. And it was really tricky, you know, going beyond the bounds of a traditional book. And, you know, I still feel like I'm developing my own intuitions in the kitchen. I certainly don't think I was born with an innate sense of how flavors go together. So it was a really interesting journey for me. I was just going to say, I mean, the two things that come to mind is how did uh, making Indianish actually inform this new book? Were there elements of it that were essential for you to make this particular book? And and then on top of that, did, did you actually discover any particular vulnerabilities about yourself in the kitchen? I mean, I think one of the big things with Indianish was sort of realizing that there are formulas for how my mom cooks. You know, there, you know, she starts with the spices. She usually adds onions. Here's cases where she wouldn't add onions. You know, she always adds some sort of, you know, acidic topping, whether it's yogurt or lime juice, maybe for crunch, it'll be the spices or maybe it'll be the crunch of the peanuts. And so my mom one day sort of created kind of like a flow chart for how she thinks about cooking any dish. Um, And I found that to be a super helpful thing for me to just sort of like give myself a roadmap for like, how do I make a delicious Indian dish with whatever vegetable, whatever meat I have on hand. Um, And that really informed um, when I was writing cooking at home, I was like, how can I similarly break cooking down into these approachable mix and match formulas? And I think one thing that I realized in writing cooking at home was, you know, how much I had kind of inadvertently by making my mom write down like precise measurements, you know, I was really submitting her recipes to the very like Western contemporary recipe writing um, format. And, you know, looking back, I I do think that like, I probably would have been a bit more unapologetic about, you know, this you can do, you know, you don't need to measure out a quarter cup of cilantro, put as much cilantro as you want on top of this dish. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that a lot of Indian cooking, you really can do as we call it, you know, by, you know, whatever feels right for you. And that that is a good skill for people to develop. And is that just easier when you're using what you have in front of you, like the microwave and being able to then take that sort of sentiment forward in this in this new sort of effort, I wonder if if people sort of will feel that much more of a licensure to do that when they're when they're reading that. I hope so. I mean, I feel like we did a really good job striking a balance between holding people's hands and not like sending them in blind and saying like figure out how to make something delicious. Like we really gave a good idea of like flavor combinations, how to season, how to think about what seasoning is right for you. And so I think, you know, it's not about, you know, handing someone a car and not telling them how to drive. It's like giving them enough, enough guidance that they can figure it out on their own without us telling you, put a teaspoon of this teaspoon of that. You're listening to trust me. I know what I'm doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with food reporter Priya Krishna. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with best-selling author and New York Times food reporter, Bria Krishna. Speaking of handing someone a car, I'm thinking of my daughter who's, who's now freshman in college and uh, she's in her first year um, in the dorms. By the way, thank you for the dining hall hacks 
idea and book. When you were crafting that even and going through that sort of adventure, how did how did creating that build confidence or sort of trust in yourself or momentum even at that time in your life, perhaps both personally and professionally? <laughs> I'm really thank you for asking about that book, by the way, because not many people ask about it or know of no it even exists. <laughs> yeah. You know, just thinking of my own like dorm dining hall days, go bears at Cal, by the way. I, I think it's ingenious to be able to say, hey, look, here's a problem, here's a gap, let's solve it and and find some some creative solutions to that. Yeah. I mean, I that book was <laughs> it feels like I wrote it a whole other era ago because I wrote a big part of it in college. And I didn't know the traditional process of getting a book published, which is finding an agent, you know, shopping a proposal around. Um, I remember my dad and I um we printed and mailed like 50 proposals to a bunch of publishing companies kind of unsolicited. And I slowly started receiving rejection letters. My senior spring, my dad would like scan and send me the different letters. (laughs) Right. Um, And then to my surprise, one publishing company got back to me and was like, yeah, we'd like to publish this book. And it was so thrilling for me as like, I think I was 20, 21 years old just to see any publisher have interest in this sort of crazy idea I'd had in college. And it really gave me the confidence to sort of trust in my own ideas and to trust in my own work ethic and persistence and to know that that, you know, can take you far. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. For you, even professionally not only just as a as a writer as as a cook as someone who's experimenting with this uh, you know does and i've asked this to other people before but does that acceleration also give you kind of like the freedom to experiment a little bit and to know in some ways kind of how to su- how to successfully fail and i was thinking about this even from the confidence standpoint the other day i tried to i tried is the key word here i tried to make uthapa for myself yeah, for my parents, and I I made a version of uthapam, and I tasted it, and it was awesome. And then I I gave it to my parents, and my parents were my mom had this very like kind of patient, you know, loving smile on her face, but I could tell that this was this was not very tasty for her. And <laughs> the, the whole point to me was I didn't really I wasn't really doing that with a whole lot of confidence or previous success in doing this, and I always wonder whether or not publishing a book, having some momentum behind that, does that actually give you the freedom to sort of be able to experiment and fail and sort of do things without that kind of reserve, if you will? For me, no. I always <laughs> worry about... Yeah, no. If anything, it, it does the opposite. You know, you feel mm-hmm. like I've published a cookbook. I like need to... Yeah, I need to succeed when I have people over for dinner. I fret just as much as everyone else does because I'm like, I feel like people expect more of me because I'm cooking right. for them. So, no, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that probably has more to do with me and my anxiety than <laughs> anything else. Well, and I wonder, you know, so much of what we see as far as cooking and and food and and preparation and even the experience of it especially on social media, it becomes this sort of highlight reel of success. And I'm, I'm imagining that for those who are really, really savvy that, you know, in that way, then how do you deal with experimentation and the failure of things? Like, wow, that didn't go as I planned it. And yet, what a nice surprise that's become. Or 
here's a lesson that I learned clearly from not making that the, the correct way. How do you deal with that aspect of what ultimately must be a part of the kind of cooking and professional journey? I have to admit, I'm still really bad at when I at when I make something and it doesn't turn out the way I did, or when I do something and it doesn't turn out the way it did. I'm really bad at dealing with those kinds of failures, and I need to get better at it. But you know, every time I look back at you know a recipe that didn't quite work that I really had to try a bunch of times or had to ultimately give up on, or you know, some professional experience that didn't go my way, you know, it all. It all ultimately works out in the end, but in the moment, it's absolutely infuriating and anxiety-inducing for me. <laughs> and not not making it onto Instagram, I, I would I would guess. Oh, I try to put all of the failures on Instagram. Yeah. I think it's important for Instagram not to be sort of this like manicured version of your life, but rather a very real version. Right. Right. You know, you you wrote recently about a cookbook, and I love this uh, about a cookbook that features sort of indigenous food of the Americas. And, and I was also reading a piece about the sort of whitewashing of recipe making mm-hmm. um, or recipe writing for that matter. Is there a sweet spot or a secret to educating broadly while also kind of empowering the origin of the food without codifying it? And, and I hope that makes sense a little bit in, in that there, there's always this balance of, of trying to really highlight and amplify what the the origins and, and the stories are without itself being a a act of of that codification D- does this just simply come from more food writers and and leaders of color representing these backgrounds and traditions how have, have you felt about that i mean a hundred percent that is the first step as long as the tops of mastheads remain overwhelmingly white we won't get to see those sort of non-white foods be normalized in the way that they ought to be but I think, you know, the more writers and writers of color just think about their audience, not in terms of a white person. I think, you know, as an Indian person who grew up in the U.S. in a predominantly white community, it feels instinctual for me to want to, ex- to, to when I'm writing my books, to be like, okay, how would I explain this to a white person? Sometimes we just do it totally subconsciously. Yeah. I think if we'd be like, if we could all just start thinking about like, how would I write for me? Um, how would I write for from for my community? I think that's where we can start to make some progress. And I think there seems to be this notion that if we're writing for our own community, it immediately becomes inaccessible to other communities. That's not true. Yeah. It you know if that were true, then all of the white cookbooks for white people <laughs> would be right. inaccessible to me. But I've had to think outside myself and and you know to these cookbooks for a really long time. But I think. As, as, as soon as we start writing for ourselves, I think we're going to start to see some important progress being made. And I don't think it's a zero-sum game. Well, I wonder, I mean, it sounds like there's an element in that way of sort of turning off the code switching, because mm-hmm. I, I imagine that we don't necessarily do that, or, or sorry, you don't do that in, I don't necessarily cooks in, in that way, but in the kitchen, you probably don't do that, right? I mean, you're cooking sort of for yourself and what, what you're, yep. you're owning it. And yet when you're writing and when people are maybe sharing their experiences, they may actually be code switching to an audience that not necessarily is that they're taking responsibility for. Is that, is that basically sort of just saying, look, you're not code switching when you're making food. So let's not code switch when we're writing about food. Yeah, I think so. And I think like there will always be things that will be like by us for us that aren't meant to be shared beyond the community. But 
yeah, I mean, I think, gosh, code switching became so automatic to me. I, I mean, I didn't have a word for it until my like mid twenties, yeah. but yeah, I wish that I had done it less and that, you know, I, I, I still have to catch myself today. Do elements of that actually come come out in your in your writing or in your cooking? I mean, being an Indian American from Texas and how that maybe has I've asked others about like how growing up in the Midwest or growing up in New York has informed them. You know, has has growing up in Texas given you particular aspects of of your work that are, you know, kind of packaged and defined in that way? I wouldn't say that it's influenced by like my Texas upbringing, but just growing up in the US, I mean, honestly, if you look at a lot of my early work, there is a lot of over explanation of Indian concepts, mm. even like in my first, in my, in my book, Indianish, I'm still like annoyed that I refer to gari as a soup. It's not a soup. It's its yeah. own thing. Yeah. It's, it defies categorization. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely am thinking about how in future writing and future books, I can do less of that. Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with food reporter Priya Krishna. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with best-selling author and New York Times food reporter, Bria Krishna. Well, and speaking of that, you can't make garhi without dahi. And um, <laughs> having your parents around to sort of describe the process and the story behind that, and especially through your dad, is, is just awesome. Why don't we ask our parents more about their own food journeys and like how these things came about. Are there aha switches that happened for you that sort of made you discover that more? And, and for others, for that matter, that hopefully they're reading your books or, or, you know, maybe the accelerators to those aha switches going off. I mean, I don't know why we don't ask our parents because we really should. Like it took me becoming a food, a freelance food writer, just like looking for things to write about to really start talking to my parents. And I'm so glad I did. I mean, yeah. like hearing these stories from them is just so fun and enriching and exciting. And it's like getting to know them in a totally different way. Yeah. Did you learn any surprises uh, about yourself along the way, especially as you ask them more questions and and kind of how how your own reminiscing about this, you know, maybe goes forward. Do you now recall those gutty or dahi moments when you were growing up differently because because of it? I mean, it was funny to think about how my mom to hear what my mom's nostalgic moments were. Yeah, like you know, for me, I think about my mom, you know, stirring curry or rolling out rotis, but she has that version of, that she did with her grandmother of her mom, grandmother rolling out rotis and her sitting on the counter and watching her getting jalebi with her allowance money after school, yeah. like, you know, hearing my mom speak about nostalgia, speaking about being a six or seven year old kid is just so wonderful. I think the moment for me has, you know, happened when, where I've heard my mom talk about the, these things, but even her experience, both all four of my grandparents were actually here when I was growing up. Oh. And, and so for my mom, now using things like an Instapot, which was so foreign to what her growing up experience was, mm -hmm. you know, now becomes this sort of like, okay, this is not something that I'm nostalgic about from my childhood. 
But really what I'm nostalgic about from, you know, the eighties and the nineties of me cooking for my family, um, which right. is a very, very different experience for both my grandparents and for me. For totally. I've heard you talk about this at least, um, and, and you've shared a lot about mentoring others um, and paving a pathway. What exactly for you have you learned about yourself along the way, especially about mentoring others in providing resources or, or those pathways to others? Yeah. I mean, I think what's so important is that like, yes, writers writing about diverse topics is very, very important, but as important, and if not more important, it's writers bringing other writers to the table who don't have the, the privilege, those connections and plugging them in to, to those places so that they can be the ones to tell those stories. And I think that is so, so, so important. You know, like I wrote this book about indigenous, like the indigenous cookbook by indigenous people. And I was happy to write it, but it also made me wonder like, why aren't there more indigenous people writing for the times? You know, why don't, not just about indigenous food ways, but about, you know, all food ways. So I don't know, I'm always trying to make myself available, you know, offer the resources that I can help people workshop a pitch so that we really can diversify the stable of, of writers and perspectives that we've got, but it's hard. There's not like a formalized way of doing it. I'm still trying to figure out how to formalize it, but it's just like, yeah, I try to publicly make myself available as much as I can. And I, I created, I get so many emails, you know, inquiring to, to pick my brain and I can't do all of those. So I tried to sort of make a resource page on my website yeah. And do regular Instagram lives so that people can ask me whatever questions they do have. I've learned, I've experienced this as a sort of mentor to other uh, junior physicians in that way. But ha- have you taken some lessons away from the people that you've tried to mentor? What's I think there's a word. It's called like like group mentoring or like like I don't know. I I, I feel like yeah. doing this via social media or via my website is a way to reach the most people that I can, sure. and that's probably more effective than like saying like I'm going to pick two people and mentor right. them. Right. You're not holding the fellowship program, perhaps, yeah. in that way. Is your, Do you see your responsibility in some ways as a food writer to bring mastery of an art to everyone or, or utilize practicality as a vehicle towards mastery? I think it's about inspiring curiosity, whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's about the world around you. I think food is a really beautiful lens through which to do that. And I think that if my stories can make people think a little harder on a subject, then I've done my job. Someone who's maybe viewing or reading your work for the first time, aliens who are landing on the planet and they're reading Priya Krishna, this is the first thing that they're, that they're experiencing. What do you want them to learn about you? And perhaps how do you want them to feel once they've read something of yours or or viewed something of yours? I want them to feel like, wow, this story is about food, but it's really about so much more. It's about politics. It's about race. It's about class. It's about, you know, culture and religion and sports. And I think food is such an easy and like literally digestible way to really understand such a variety of issues. So I think like, you know, someone reading my stories for the first time would be like, wow, food is a really good way to like understand the world around me and to really like interrogate, you know, a lot of the structures that we don't think to interrogate. 
you speak of all these different venues, and I'm, I'm struck by how tribal our communities and our societies are. Do you view food and your writing as ways to, in some ways, blend those or, or merge those or, or make those more connected? And how, how do we solve some of that through food? I mean, I don't want to pretend that food can can heal because there are people... I mean, food can heal, of course, but you know, just as much as that, there are people who love tacos but are anti-immigration. So I think part of me just wants to use my writing to sort of understand what's happening and sort of reflect a, a sort of create like a mirror onto our society. I think one of the really interesting things about the times is that, you know, we're we're, we're here to tell the truth. I'm not here to provide an opinion, but at the same time, you have to think hard about whose truths are we telling, you know, who gets to be the one to tell the truth in our stories. And I think that without expressing any opinion of my own, I hope that my stories will speak volumes and, you know, teach people something about the world around them, make them reconsider an assumption that they had. Does that make sense? Completely. And and I hope it just builds a, a larger community of folks who are not anti-taco um, as well. <laughs> so Priya, thank you so much for joining us. What a treat. And I hope you'll come back and join us at some point again. Of course. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Thanks again, Priya. And please, everyone, stay safe out there by masking and getting vaccinated. Till next time, I'm Abhaydarnika. What's going on, world? It's Martin Tuesu on Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian radio station.